We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order. So in the order the events happened, because we want to discover for ourselves who Jesus really was, what he really did, what he really said. Our culture has so many ideas about Jesus. There are so many myths about Jesus, but Who was he really? Let's find out for ourselves. And last time we were in this series, we wrapped up Luke 12 with Jesus reminding us of the reality that this world really is going to come to an end one day, and each of us, no matter what, is not going to live here forever. And in light of that, God's word challenged us with questions like, how should we live? What should we prioritize? And how can we make sure that when we arrive in eternity, we don't look back with regret and say, I've wasted my life. How do we do that? We talked about that last time. This week, Jesus is gonna be asked a question about life, and he will choose to direct everyone's attention to what really matters most. And we're also gonna find out what God's plan is for Israel, for those who rejected him while he was on the earth. And we're gonna be encouraged by a miracle that's gonna teach you and I about perseverance, about keeping the faith in the faith. So let's jump in right at the beginning of Luke 13. It says, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I think we're all familiar with that event, so we'll just keep moving. I'm kidding. These men were bringing up an infamous and recent at the time local event. It's an obscure historical event in that we know it happened, but some of the details are a little bit foggy, so I'll do my best to fill you in. What is historical fact is that Pontius Pilate, the Roman colonial governor of Judea, seized some funds from the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. It was an engineering marvel, it's still there to this day. Obviously this was wildly offensive to the Jews as the temple was and is the most sacred place and institution of the Jewish faith. We know that Pilate's actions stirred up Jewish nationalism and they began to protest against Pilate. And so at this point, we need to remember that being the colonial Roman governor of Judea is not an easy assignment. Everyone else in the Roman world was required to give a pinch offering to Caesar, which was to put a little bit of incense on the altar once a year and say, Caesar is God. Israel was the only territory in the Roman Empire where they didn't have to do that because the Jews just refused to do it. If they went in and killed them, they would still refuse to do it. Till it eventually got to the point where the Romans said, well, we can't like kill them all. So they made a special exception for them and they were allowed to observe some of their own customs and laws while still being under Roman jurisdiction. So if you were the Roman colonial governor of anywhere in Israel, you were presiding over a powder keg, a political situation that could explode at any moment if you or any Roman soldier overstepped what the Jews considered to be your bounds and stepped foot onto their Jewish customs and sacred laws. So Pontius Pilate has made a major cultural misstep in seizing funds from the temple. Most governors kept things on a pretty tight leash because it was a country where things could blow up in a hurry. There's two differing accounts of what exactly happened next. The first says that while a protest was going on against Pilate having seized these funds, Pilate sends in some of his henchmen in civilian clothing in amongst the protest. They disperse among the protesters and when a sign is given, they pull out daggers and literally start cutting down protesters right there in the street, killing them, knifing them in the back. 
The second explanation that's out there is that Pilate sends his henchmen to attack these protesters at a time when they would not be expecting it. And that time was while they were worshiping at the temple and they show up and literally kill them while they're making sacrifices at the temple and their blood is literally mingled with the blood of the sacrifices they were making. Surprisingly, the story doesn't appear in any children's Bible that I've read before. So it would have been either way a wildly horrific, atrocious event, potentially blasphemous as well on a religious level. But as is mentioned, the men who were killed were all Galileans, which is strange because if you're familiar with Israel's geography, Galilee is in the north and Judea, where Jerusalem is, is in the south. It takes a few days to get from one place to the other, but it says all the men who were killed in Jerusalem were Galilean. In Israel, the southerners were closer to Jerusalem. It was the largest city in the country, the metropolis, the philosophical, intellectual, and spiritual center of the country. If you were enlightened, if you were cosmopolitan, you would be in or around Jerusalem. The northern area was like the boonies of Israel. That was the blue-collar working-class place. If you were an up-and-coming intellectual, you would not be up there in the north. That's why they make fun of Jesus when he comes from Nazareth. And they say, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth because they have that view. They look down their noses at the northerners. So it's possible that despite Pilate's actions, despite him seizing the funds, those who lived around Jerusalem had enough political acumen to understand, yeah, he did this, but what can we really do? He's probably going to kill us if we protest because he doesn't want to let things get out of hand in the country. Because if things blow up in Israel, he's going to lose his governorship. He's going to be called back to Rome and he's going to be demoted. This event would actually be one of the first major steps in that happening to Pontius Pilate. He really blew it here. So the southerners might have said, this is outrageous, this is horrible, this is blasphemous, but what are you going to do? Whereas the northerners may have sent down a group from Galilee to protest on their behalf to represent their shock and disgust with what Pilate had done and they might not have been as politically discerning and so they really may have been the only ones protesting, these northern conservative Galileans. And that's the potential backstory here. What's also not clear is the motivation that these men have in bringing up this incident to Jesus. Why are they bringing this up? Well, it could have been Jesus' enemies trying to trap him because think about it, when they bring up this issue, if Jesus says, Pilate's a horrible person, Satan incarnate, terrible leader, they can go say, hey, listen, Jesus is stirring up trouble against the Roman Empire, against your authority, you gotta deal with it, and they would be rid of the Jesus problem. But if Jesus said, oh, you know, these things happen, they would say, well, you're a traitor to your own countrymen. You don't care even about your own people. Shame on you. So they could have been trying to trap Jesus. They could have been trying to find out where Jesus stood politically. Most of you probably know one of the big reasons they didn't receive Jesus but rejected him is they were waiting for a political Messiah to overthrow Rome. And so maybe they're putting out some feelers here to see, Jesus, what are we going to do about the Roman problem? What are we going to do about Pilate? They also could have been sincerely asking him, what do we do with this event? Like, why did this happen? This is horrible. What's the, what's the deeper meaning here? They were good people. Verse two, and let's see what happens. Verse two, it says, and Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? So Jesus decides the first thing that he wants to say is, I know what you guys are thinking. 
you're thinking there must have been some sort of sin issue or something going on with these guys that such an atrocity could befall them. You see, at this time, pretty much all Jews generally believed this was the explanation for any difficulty, any tragic circumstance, any sickness that befell anyone. If a person had something bad happen to them, it would immediately be, well, I wonder what was really going on with them, you know, what was really happening. In John 9, I think I put it on your outlines, in John 9, this interaction happens. It says, now as Jesus passed by, He saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's the view of the disciples and pretty much every Jew at that time. And by the way, Jesus answers them by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So Jesus says, it's got nothing to do with sin. This man was born blind so that he could be healed by me at this moment and bring glory to God. So while it's true that sin can bring devastating things into our lives, it's not always true that every bad thing that comes into our life is the result of our own personal sin. And in that instance, Jesus told his disciples, this has got nothing to do with sin on this man's part or this man's parents. There was something bigger going on here. And in this case, everyone is assuming the same thing about these murdered Galileans. Must be some sort of sin issue going on. Even us, when bad things happen in our lives, you know, we're very gracious with ourselves. And when I say gracious, I mean we're like, why me? Why me? I'm such a good person. Why is this bad thing happening to me? But when it happens to other people, even if we don't say it out loud, how often is our first immediate thought, well, you know, we don't really know the whole picture. It's probably something going on that we're not aware of, some terrible, stupid decision on their part or some evil sin Often we won't say it out loud because we have decent manners half the time, but we still think it. We still think it. We tend to naturally drift towards this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So if good things are happening to me, it must be because I'm good. And if bad things are happening to me, perhaps it's because I'm bad. And we should be very, very careful about that. This is your first fill-in. The question they're asking Jesus is, were their deaths the result of karma or sin? That's what they're basically saying. Is this a case of what goes around comes around? Is this a sin issue? Is this something like that always? And Jesus says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Then in verse three he goes on and says, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus says, this isn't karma. This isn't a sin issue. They weren't being punished for something. But then he goes on and he says something really disturbing. He says, that's what I have to say about those Galileans. Now I want to talk about you. Unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. You all look at that atrocity and you think to yourselves, how awful, how how tragic, how barbaric, how horrific. But you're missing the truth that if all you do is stay on the path that you're on, you too will die awfully, tragically, horrifically, atrociously. Of course, Jesus is speaking of eternal death, death in the life after this life. And he says, you're asking philosophical questions. You're asking political questions. You want to have deep, engaging discussions, but you're not addressing the one issue that's more important than anything else. You're headed for destruction yourselves. 
That's the only thing that matters. You see, you and I are born with sin in our genetics, in our physical and spiritual genetics. Every single one of us sins. And we know that even a single sin separates us from a relationship with a perfect God. Even one. When the standard is perfection, one sin is a failure to meet that standard. That's our default state. We're born sinners. That's our default. And unless we respond to Jesus, the only way to be saved from our sins, unless we respond to him, we simply stay in that default state, headed for destruction. And that's what Jesus is telling these men. He says, guys, you're on your default setting right now. And your default setting will result in your destruction one day. That's what Jesus is saying. You think they deserve death? Well, you deserve death too. You're all sinners too. None of you measure up to God's standards. In fact, you're all enemies of God right now. You're all doomed and you need to be saved right now. So make a note of this. When a person rejects Jesus, they choose the path of destruction. When a person rejects Jesus, they choose the path of destruction. These people are looking at their country and they're saying, oh, look at this political situation. Look, look at the cultural persecution we're going through. What is going to happen to the future of our nation? And Jesus says, there's a much more pressing issue here. You're destined to be damned eternally unless you repent. And You're concerned about politics? You're concerned about culture? Something much bigger is going on. Then Jesus brings up a recent tragedy in verse four. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Some of you will remember the pool of Siloam also from John 9, which we're gonna read next week actually. Jesus healed a blind man there when he rubbed some clay on his eyes and then sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam and the man has his sight miraculously restored. The pool is actually more of a reservoir located where the southern and eastern walls of Jerusalem meet. And where those walls meet, there was a big tower, a minaret perhaps of some sort, perhaps some sort of guard tower so they could keep watch over the city. And one day out of the blue, this tower collapses on the people below in the pool of Siloam and 18 people are killed in a tragic event. And again, the assumption is, well, you know, we don't know what was going on in the lives of those 18 people. And I'm sure it's not just a coincidence that those 18 people happen to be the ones who died. Jesus says, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know why those men died? Because the tower was old. And when you don't maintain things, they tend to break and collapse and fall apart. Jesus says there's nothing more profound than that going on in that incident. It's just a tragedy, but here's the thing. Calamity, tragedy, sudden destruction will come upon you unless you repent. And that word repent doesn't mean be really sorry. It doesn't mean cry in church. It means change your mind, change your mind. Jesus is saying you're doomed to, you're gonna perish to unless you change your mind about what? About him about who he is, about how much they need him. 
And there are so many distractions in life. And in this interaction, Jesus deals with some pretty huge ones. He deals with an atrocity and he deals with a tragedy. And Jesus himself stands before these people as he stands before you and I and he says, what matters most is not what's going on in the world politically. What matters most is not the decline of society and culture in the Western world. What matters most is not the atrocities and tragedies that unfold on a daily basis, the earthquakes in Ecuador and Japan happening even this weekend. He says what matters even more than that, more than anything, is this. Have you turned to me and found forgiveness for your sins? Because if the answer is no, nothing else matters. Nothing else is of importance. If you hear one thing from me today, please, please hear this. If you've not had your sins forgiven by Jesus, nothing else matters matters. It doesn't matter that you're becoming a better person. Nothing else matters if you haven't had your sins forgiven. You might be on track in your dream career. You might be climbing the ladder. You might be well on your way to being able to afford your dream home. It's almost like a joke here, actually. You might be in a relationship with your soulmate. You might be building a secure financial future for yourselves. You might even have a few really cute kids and be well on your way to having that ideal family you have pictured in your mind. But despite all of that, if you've not had your sins forgiven by Jesus, you're destined for destruction. You're destined for destruction. It doesn't matter how nicely you decorate your life. Without Jesus, you're destined for destruction. Nothing else matters. If you only catch one thing I say today, please let that be it. We need forgiveness through Jesus. We need our sins forgiven more than we need anything else. There's no substitute for Jesus. He's our only hope. That's what Jesus was telling this Jewish crowd. Let's keep reading in verse six. It says, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So remember as we go through this, this is just a continuation of what's happened before. Jesus is speaking to the same crowd, the same crowd that he's just said, repent or you too will perish. And then he tells the story. Let's find out why. So to understand this, it's worth looking back at Luke 3. I put it on your outlines where we find Jesus at his politically correct best. Luke 3, Jesus says, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, and then underline this phrase, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So in this instance, guys were coming out to be baptized by Jesus saying, this is a, a cool thing. Jesus is the hype teacher of our time. Let's get in on this. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Baptism is for those who have repented. Baptism is for those who have turned to me as their savior. Baptism is not for the seeker. Baptism is not for those who are mildly interested. Baptism is for those who have given their lives to me. 
That's who baptism is for. You guys are just checking this thing out. This is not for you. And then he tells them, your repentance needs to produce evidence. He calls them fruits, evidence in their lives. In other words, if you claim that you've started following Jesus, but nothing in your life has changed, then you're not really following Jesus. This is Jesus Christ himself saying, when you repent, there's a change. You don't become perfect overnight. You don't become amazing at everything overnight, but there is a a, a change. Something changes immediately in you. Your appetites change. So make a note of this. True repentance produces the fruit of a changed life. True repentance produces the fruit of a changed life. And even those who don't believe in the Lord get this, because I saw a meme the other day that said, the best apology is changed behavior. And isn't that the truth? So even those who don't believe in the Lord understand that real apology, real repentance is changing your mind about the way you've been behaving and deciding that you need to begin behaving in a different way. And so that's why that meme says, hey, if you're really apologizing, there'll be changed behavior. Jesus is just saying the same thing. He's saying if you've really repented, if you've really had a change of mind, there's going to be evidence of that changed mind in your life. These guys are all saying, we're Jewish. We're the chosen people. That's all we really need to be in God's good books. And Jesus' response is, being Jewish isn't going to save you. Your father can make Jews out of rocks if he wants to. You don't have the market cornered or anything like that. You need to repent. So too to you and I, Jesus says, when you repent, when you choose to follow me, it will result in a changed life. I'm the only one that can save you. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It doesn't matter if you say, I'm a good person. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm good to people. I'm certainly better than that person over there. That's all God really cares about is that you be a good, nice person. Jesus says, no, you need your sins forgiven. You need to repent. But look again at what Jesus says to this Jewish crowd in verse six. He says, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit, underline seeking fruit on it and found none. So what kind of fruit is this certain man seeking? What has Jesus just been talking about to them? Repentance, repentance. He wants to know, is there any evidence of repentance? Is there any fruit of repentance in their lives? Then in verse seven it says, then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look for three years, underline three years, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why does it use up the ground? What an interesting amount of time. Three years. How long was Jesus' earthly ministry? Three years, three years. So write this down. Three years is the length of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the length of his earthly ministry. And then I'll unpack this after we do this. This is your next fill-in immediately after that. The fig tree is Israel. The fig tree is Israel. And for three years, Jesus ministered to them, calling them to repent, calling them to change their mind about who he was and find forgiveness for their sins through him. And as a people, they would not repent. They would not turn to Jesus. So the question comes up, is God done with Israel? Is he through with the Jew? So let's see what Jesus himself says in response to that question. In response to the idea, he came for three years seeking repentance, he found none. Cut the tree up, get rid of it. Verse eight, but he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. 
So despite the fact that Israel would not repent during the three years of earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus' response is, give them more time. We're not done with them yet. Let me do a couple of things first. So the first thing we should take note of, and you can write this down, is that Israel's rejection of Jesus' ministry did not cause God to reject Israel. Israel's rejection of Jesus' ministry did not cause God to reject Israel. It's not that he looks on and says, hey, you're doing great. It's just that he's not done yet. He's given them more time. And I wanna suggest to you that that one year is not talking about one more calendar year after Jesus ascended at the end of his earthly ministry. I wanna suggest to you that that one year is a period of time that we're gonna study right now. In other words, what is God going to do during this extra year? So let's take a look at this. To this fig tree, to Israel, what is he going to do according to the Bible during that year to try and get them to bear fruit? Well, it says he's going to dig around it and fertilize it, right? That's what it says. That means he's going to dig and expose the roots of this tree and surround the tree with fertilizer to make it bear fruit to turbocharge the tree's growth and development. And around 33 AD, fertilizer only means one thing. Doo-doo, poop, manure, etc., etc., etc. So what is God's plan to make this tree grow, to make it produce fruit? Well, he's going to expose the roots of it and then surround it with literal crap. That's his plan. So what time, so let's take a step back and do this. What time in the whole history of Israel would we say is the most poopy? Where they're really going through it, they're exposed, they're surrounded, they're isolated, and they're just dealing with a lot of stuff, the word I can't really say in church. Well, if you read your Bible, you'll know that that time actually hasn't even come yet. It's to come in the future. There is a time the Bible speaks about that's worse than the Holocaust. It's worse than the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's a time that the prophet Jeremiah wrote about and he described this way. It's on your outlines, check it out. It says, now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turning pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, and he shall be saved out of it. So this is describing a coming time that because of Jeremiah 30 is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. And note what it says. It says, for that day is great, so that none is like it. So this is different, it's worse than anything that's ever going to have happened before. For those of you who've been through our Revelation study, you're going to recall that this time is the second half of that seven year period that follows the rapture of the church. So I know I'm racing through this if you're not familiar with this, but you can get our Revelation study for free at the back and get yourself up to speed. The church is raptured off the earth. Shortly after that begins a very specific seven-year period that is described in the book of Revelation in detail. The halfway point of those seven years is distinct because of an event that takes place. It has the most metal name ever. The event is known as the abomination of desolation. 
This event refers to the time when Antichrist goes into the temple after there being peace between the Muslims and Jews for three and a half years. He goes into the temple, sets up his own throne and says, I'm God, worship me. And that kicks off this three and a half year back half known as the Great Tribulation. And as a result of having their roots exposed and going through this horrific time, the fig tree of Israel is gonna turn to Jesus, recognize who he is, and be saved. When Jesus talks about this event, Jesus is going to say, when you see that happen, when you see the abomination of desolation happening, run for the hills. He literally says, don't grab anything, you don't have time, because the Jews are gonna refuse to worship Antichrist and his response is gonna be to try and wipe them off the face of the earth in an ethnic genocide. Jesus says it's gonna be like nothing you've ever seen before. Write this down, Israel's most difficult season of history is yet to come, it's yet to come. And let me read to you what Jesus says about this time in Matthew 24, and it lines up with Jeremiah 30. Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, unless there was a time limit on those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And here's the thing when you read that, I'll try not to get too sidetracked, but for anyone who will tell you, oh, that's what happened in 70 AD when the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, let me ask you, was that worse than the Holocaust? Not even in the ballpark of the Holocaust. Multiple times more Jews died in the Holocaust. There's nobody who would call the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD worse than the Holocaust. So Jesus says of this event, it's going to be worse than anything you've ever seen, worse than anything that ever will happen. And it's gonna take place in Israel, in Jerusalem. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, the worst time in Israel's history that they will ever see. But check out Zechariah 12.10, also on your outlines. It describes the moment Israel is gonna recognize who Jesus really is. The Lord says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So at that moment, when God opens their eyes to see exactly who he is, their first reaction isn't gonna be to rejoice. Their first reaction is going to appropriately be to mourn, to mourn over their part in his death and to mourn over the 2,000 years that they spent rejecting him as Messiah. You see, God is not through with the Jew. He's not done with Israel. He never breaks a promise he makes. And thousands of years ago, he made Israel his chosen people. And if there's one thing you can count on with the Lord, it's his faithfulness. You can count on the faithfulness of God. 
And I saved the most interesting bit of information on this for last. In the original language, there's only one other place in the Bible where Jesus uses the exact same word, the exact same tense of the word, the exact same verbiage that he uses when he says, let it alone, as he says to the man who wants to cut down the tree. We just read, Jesus says, no, let it alone. You know where else he says that? Only one other place. Jesus says it exact same way when he's hanging on the cross, gazing upon those who have rejected him and arranged for his murder, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The word when he says forgive them is the exact same word in every way that he uses when he says, let it alone of the fig tree in Israel. And when we hear this and we study this, I hope it blesses us because it shows us the heart of God. It shows us the lengths that he will go to. It shows us how long he will keep a promise, over 2,000 years, even to a people who have rejected him. How hard he will work to change our stubborn hearts. And he's faithfully working on any of us who haven't given our lives to Jesus yet. He's faithfully working on spouses that don't know the Lord, on family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, So keep praying for those in your life who don't know the Lord. God's working on them. Don't lose hope. And when you do, look at his faithfulness to Israel, how he has preserved them against all odds, against all odds. In verse 10 it says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity, underline a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. So we know that not all sickness is caused by spiritual issues. We talked about that earlier with the blind man from John 9. However, some sickness is caused by spiritual issues and we're told that plainly right here in verse 11. The second thing we learn is that while a believer can't be possessed, man, we're just hitting on all the weird stuff today. While a believer can't be possessed by a demon, a believer can be oppressed, they can be hassled by a demon. A demon can't take up the place of residence, possession in a person because you are already the possession of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, occupying you. That place is not available for rent. You belong to the Lord if you're a believer. So you can't be possessed. However, a believer can be oppressed from the outside, hassled, troubled, annoyed by an external demonic force. And apparently that's what's taking place here. But here's what's baffling to our paradigm of spiritual warfare about this woman. What's baffling is that this woman loved the Lord enough that apparently she kept going to synagogue. She kept going to church every Saturday despite her sickness. She didn't get mad at God and say, forget you. I've been good and now I'm getting repaid with evil. She didn't turn her back on the church because things weren't working out perfectly in her life. She was mature enough to understand that this life is not heaven. This life is not everything as it should be. Not only that, but in verse 16, Jesus is going to describe her as a daughter of Abraham, which is significant because Galatians tells us that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So when Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham, he's saying she's a woman of faith, and she's a faithful woman. She's not sick because of anything she's done. She's not sick because of sin. She hasn't given up on the church and got bitter. And it's not that she lacked the faith to be healed. She seems to check all the boxes. This is just something that the Lord had allowed for reasons that we can't know on this side of eternity. Perhaps it was because Jesus wanted to do what he was about to do. 
Perhaps it was because her faithfulness to the Lord, despite her situation, was an encouragement and an example to those around her. Perhaps it made her more like Jesus. We can't know on this side of eternity. But here she was, as always, in church on the weekend to worship the Lord. In verse 12 it says, but when Jesus saw her, he called to her and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And this absolutely wrecks me because you have to let yourself be there in the situation. You have to take your mind there. Because there she is, she's, she's bent over, worshiping God, listening to the scriptures being taught. She's been doing this for 18 years, 18 years. But today, Jesus is in her synagogue. And he looks at her and he smiles and he says, come here daughter, come here. And she has to be wondering what, what's, what's going on. And he puts his hands on her and he looks into her eyes and he says, I've set you free. You're healed from your sickness. And just for the first time in 18 years, she stands up straight, just like that. And what does she do after she's healed? What does she do? She does the same thing she was doing for the 18 years before she was healed. She glorifies God. Write this down, the woman did the same thing after her healing that she had been doing for the 18 years before her healing. She glorified God. Now you may find yourself bent over today, oppressed by some sickness or sin, some addiction or behavior that you just can't seem to escape. And perhaps you've been in the place where you're thinking, I've been to church, hasn't helped anything, hasn't changed anything, I've still got this issue, I'm still bent over. This woman came for 18 years, not reluctantly, not bitterly, but to glorify God with her brothers and sisters. 18 years. And you know what she would have done the next week if Jesus hadn't been in her synagogue that day? She would have showed up and glorified God. Would have showed up and glorified God. Maybe you've been going to church for 18 months and nothing has changed. She went for 18 years because she understood that this is not heaven. Jesus doesn't owe me a perfect life. And just because my life isn't perfect doesn't mean God's not good, doesn't mean he's not faithful. If you're frustrated that things haven't changed in that area of your life yet, keep coming to church. Keep going to small group with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Keep praying, keep seeking, keep asking, and keep glorifying God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you'll keep glorifying God, even through the difficult times when it seems like nothing is happening, I promise, I promise the day will come when Jesus will show up in your life, lay his hands upon you, and say, you're loosed, you're healed. And you won't know why it's that day. You won't know why that Sunday was different, why that Tuesday night was different, but it'll happen. And so I want to encourage you, if you can believe that, if you can have the faith to believe that, do the same thing today that you will do on the day when you're healed. Glorify God. Verse 14, it says, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. 
And if you're like me and you read this, your first reaction isn't even to be mad. It's just so ridiculous. You're, you're more puzzled. You're baffled by this man's response. But what's happening here is this man's pride is driving his behavior. Would you agree that if you're the pastor of a church and someone comes to your church on a Sunday and heals somebody who hasn't been able to walk their whole life, would you agree that people are not going to leave church that day talking about your sermon? Probably not. And this guy doesn't like this. This synagogue leader doesn't like this because nobody's leaving talking about his great reading of the scriptures. Nobody's leaving talking about his great worship leading. They're leaving talking about Jesus. And so he's more bothered by that than he is happy about this woman who's been sick for 18 years and has been healed. His pride kicks in and I know it's hard for us to understand because none of us has ever done or said anything stupid for shallow prideful reasons, but there you have it. Verse 15, then the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath? See, these religious leaders would still do the work on the Sabbath of untying their animal, taking it to a well where they could get water for it and giving their animal water. Even though it was the Sabbath, they didn't think twice about it because they just thought it was the right thing to do. Jesus is saying, you're kinder to your animals than you are to your people. You care more about your donkey than you do this woman who's been in your congregation sick for 18 years. The issue wasn't doing work on the Sabbath. The issue was these men wanted control and power over people. And so thank God that as a society, we've moved on from caring more about animals than people. You know, if you watch a movie and a guy bursts into the room full of bad guys, he's got a knife and he like guts everyone in the room and there's blood spraying everywhere and he kills everyone, you'll sit there going, oh, putting your popcorn in. But what, what if? What if when all the guys are dead, floors covered in blood, that guy looks over and those bad guys had a dog in the corner of the room and for a split second, they show him looking at the dog. You're like, God, no, not the dog. Please, not the dog. Please, not the dog. And you see, movie producers actually know this. They do that intentionally. The reason is we're so desensitized to the suffering of people, we don't care how many people die. We care about the animal. One of my favorite movies, John Wick. Somebody kills his dog, so he kills 176 people in retaliation. And you're like, man, I just can't get over the fact that they killed his dog. It just messes me up. It's not good that we're that desensitized to human suffering. You know, there's a certain madness to the fact that we raise billions of dollars every year to save animals while there's still people who need saving. You know there's still people starving to death? There, there's still people dying of diseases we have the cure for? And I can't help thinking that God is up in heaven thinking, you've got millions dying over here, you have the means to save them, but you're more concerned about the whales. Like, like, is a whale going to live forever? Does it have a spirit? If you think yes, please don't answer and embarrass yourself. It does not have a spirit. And every time I teach this, I'm always concerned that there's somebody out there who's saying, you mean Fluffy won't be in heaven? And if you're wrestling with that, I want to recommend the very theologically astute resource, All Dogs Go to Heaven. It's a documentary. You should check it out. It's very, very meaningful. 
the biblical view on conservationism is this. It's to steward the earth and be a good caretaker of the earth. So you don't recycle because you think it makes you a good person. You recycle because you don't want to have a giant garbage heap in the city that you live in. That's just common sense. You show kindness toward animals because God made us the caretaker of the earth and we have a job to steward the earth well. And sometimes that means the best thing you can do for a cow is give its life meaning by enjoying it slowly in a medium rare steak. That's what you need to do. We need to steward the earth. And so this is what we say. We remember that people have spirits and they're gonna live forever. They're gonna live forever. So people are more important than animals but we do our best to be good caretakers of the things that God has made us caretakers of, and that includes the earth. Because if you're a believer, we ultimately recognize that no one is going to save the planet. We, we understand this, right? The planet is going to end in a ball of fire, according to the Bible. And if we lower our carbon footprint, it's still gonna happen. That's still how the world is going to end. So we do our best to be good caretakers while we're here, but we don't go, crazy with it. Verse 17, it says, I feel like in Vancouver they might hang me for saying that, but it'll, maybe I'll take that off before I put it uh, on, the, on the website. Verse 17, it says, and when he had said these things, I love this, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I love that. So after Jesus' cutting response of calling the leaders hypocrites and all of the boys who were with him, all the people respond with whatever the 33 AD Jewish equivalent was of, ooh, sick burn. And the hypocrites were put to shame while everyone rejoiced over what Jesus had done for this woman. Now Jesus chooses to share two quick short parables about the kingdom of God. So a parable is just a short and simple teaching that reveals a deeper and more profound truth. Jesus also shares these two parables as part of the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. So there's some debate as to whether Jesus is repeating these two or whether these are just two that Luke highlights out of the seven that Matthew mentions. I think he's repeating them because these two are specifically going to deal with the issue of corruption in the church and we've just been dealing with a pretty shady synagogue leader who's a terrible human being. So let's read this and we'll explain it as quickly as we can. Verse 18, then he said, what's the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. So when most believers are taught this, the interpretation that's usually given goes something like this. Jesus is telling his disciples that the kingdom of God is going to explode with unbelievable growth and people are going to flock to it and find rest like birds seeking shelter in the shade of a, a mighty tree. But there's much more going on than that if you look a little bit more deeply. So firstly, you look at the context. And when you read the seven kingdom parables mentioned in Matthew 13, you'll find that Jesus is giving his disciples explanations and warnings through every parable. He's teaching us about different ways people respond to the word. And in one of those seven parables, the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus warns us that most of the time, we're not really gonna be able to tell who's given their life to Jesus and who hasn't until a good amount of time has passed. That's why Jesus talks about bearing fruit of repentance. So when a person says, I've given my life to Jesus, we celebrate that, but we can't really know if that's true till enough time has passed for us to see, is there any fruit of repentance? Is there any evidence? So secondly, we look at the facts. The mustard trees that grow in Israel and Palestine are really bushes that top out at about three feet 
high. It's a large plant, but it's an herb. It's not a tree. There's never been a mustard tree anywhere ever that grew into a mighty tree. It's just never happened scientifically. There's never been one so big that birds come and nest in its branches. That's never happened. And then lastly, we look at what's called expositional constancy. The way things appear in the Bible. So when a metaphor or an idiom shows up in the Bible, it's usually constant. It usually means the same thing everywhere that it shows up. And in Matthew 13, Jesus teaches the famous parable of the sower. And then he explains to them what each part of that parable means. It's like he's given them the key to the code. And when he does that, he tells them that the birds in the parable of the sower represent Satan. Jesus says it explicitly. In fact, birds are consistently used in scripture as an idiom for evil. So you put these all together and suddenly a very, very different picture emerges. And for those reasons, I would suggest that what Jesus is telling us is that as his kingdom, as his church grows over the centuries, there's gonna be some very abnormal growth. Not in a good way, but in a distorted way. It's going to be unnatural. It's going to turn into something it wasn't meant to be, much bigger than it was intended to be. And as a result of this unnatural growth, the workers of Satan are gonna find it very easy to slip in and reside in the church. And if you study church history, if you study what began happening around the mid-300s AD, it was the beginning of almost a thousand years of this church turning into this massive institution that accumulated more money than any organization or country ever has in history, concealing the Bible from people, abusing authority, taking the place of Jesus as the mediator between God and man. And Jesus is giving a warning about some of these things. As the church grows, it's going to become more corporate, it's going to become more political, and it's going to move further and further away from what it was intended to be. But from the outside, people are going to look on and say, well, look at this huge tree. Isn't this great? Even the birds, even those who belong to Satan feel comfortable coming here. Isn't that great? We see this so many times throughout church history as systems replace simplicity and programs and hierarchies swallow up freedom. All you have to do is turn on Christian TV. You're gonna see some really, really strange birds roosting in this tree we call Christianity. And please know, I'm not slamming churches for being big in size. I'm not saying that at all. I believe that Jesus is warning us that as the church grows, it's gonna be very susceptible to all kinds of corruption and infiltration. We're gonna hear a lot of things like, we need to run the church like a company. The pastor needs to function like a CEO. We need to look at what the world is doing and start doing the same sort of thing in our churches. And Jesus is just saying that that's gonna lead to some unhealthy things. As you read through the New Testament, you're gonna be struck by just how often Jesus and the other authors warn us to be zealous for the truth, to know God's word, and to grow up in the faith so that we can tell the difference between the birds, the things that are of Satan, and the things that are of God. So when you see some weird things going on in churches, weird things done in the name of Jesus, just remember Jesus said it would happen. He said it would happen, and he gave us instructions on how to make sure We don't get caught up in it. So when people say, well, there's been some great evil done by the church in history, you know, I don't have to rationalize it or defend it. I have to say, well, yeah, Jesus said that would happen because as long as there's people in the church, there's gonna be churches doing some weird stuff. But Christianity isn't true because the church is perfect or because his people are perfect. Christianity is true because Jesus is perfect. 
In verse 20, he goes on and he says, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which just means yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. So she hides this leaven in this bread and it permeates through the whole loaf. This is another tale that's usually explained in a positive light, like God's kingdom is like leaven. It works its way through everything and just a little bit can have a big impact. The problem is expositional constancy because leaven appears in the Bible like over a hundred times. And every time leaven shows up in the Bible, it's a picture of what? Sin. Every single time it's linked with evil. This is such a strong idiom that during Passover, and they still do this, Jews would play a game with their kids where they would hide a little scoop of leaven somewhere in the house on the floor behind a shelf, and the kids would have to find it because during Passover, they'd go through the house and get rid of all the leaven and yeast in their house as a living picture of getting sin out of their lives. They still do that to this day. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, Pay attention to what's being cooked in your churches when you get together. Pay attention to what's being fed to other people. A little bit of corruption, a little bit of sin, if you tolerate it, if you encourage it, if you turn a blind eye to it, it can have a big impact on what's being fed to people. So why does Jesus pull out these two parables about the kingdom of God again? Well, look at what happened immediately before. Jesus healed a woman who'd been sick for 18 years and the response of the leader of the synagogue was to condemn Jesus. I believe it's fairly obvious Jesus is telling these parables to reveal to those who have open spiritual ears and open spiritual eyes that the Jewish religious system and its leaders had become corrupt. It was full of leaven, it was full of sin and birds were making their home in it, a metaphor for evil having found a place to rest. Verse 22, and he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So we'll say this in conclusion, wrapping up. Salvation is all that matters. Have you been forgiven through Jesus? Is your spouse saved? Are your kids saved? Are your friends saved? Nothing else matters. If you've been praying for them and you've lost hope or you've grown weary of doing that, get fired up to do that again. Ask the Lord to pour fuel on that fire inside of you. Keep praying for them because God's working on them right now. Don't give up if you're bent over right now. If you've been coming to church, if you've been praying for even years and the healing hasn't come, don't give up. Keep glorifying God, keep coming, keep being like that woman because I guarantee Jesus is gonna walk into your life one day and say you're loosed, you're healed. Keep coming, keep pressing in, don't give up. And then just realize weird stuff is gonna happen in the name of Christianity and in the church. We're all here because we love and believe in Jesus. Christianity doesn't claim to make people perfect in this life and the church doesn't claim to be perfect. Church is always gonna be full of people who sometimes do hypocritical or weird things. That's why you fit in. It really is true. You know, somebody said this and it's true. If you find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll screw it up. We love Jesus. We're seeking Jesus. So let me be clear on this. Our example is Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. We're not expecting perfection from each other or from the church. We're expecting perfection from Jesus. He's our hope, he's our example. Let's pray, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that whatever happens in life, we have succeeded at the only thing that really matters if we belong to you. 
We have found victory through you. We found salvation through you. And so if everything in life goes wrong, we're still coming out on top because we belong to you and we'll spend eternity with you in your presence in paradise, God. Enjoying you and enjoying a life better than our wildest dreams. Thank you, God, that through you we win. We've won, Lord God. And Father, we pray right now for those spouses that don't know you, for those children who are far from you, for those friends and those coworkers that need you. Jesus, help us to remember that being a good person doesn't matter. Having a good marriage, being a good parent, all those things are good, but we don't need those like we need to be forgiven by you. So Father, put a fire in us to pray for those people with passion and with faithfulness. And Holy Spirit, give us a boldness the way that you empowered the apostles and the early church to be bold with our faith and bold with the gospel. We need that, God. And Father, for those of us who are bent over right now, who have not had our prayers answered, who are feeling like it makes no difference whether we come to church or not, whether we lift up our hands and glorify God one more time or not. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would restore faith. And today, even in this coming time of worship, may each of us determine in our own hearts, I am going to glorify God. I will do now the same thing that I believe I will do on the day when my healing comes. I will do the same thing today that I will do with my last breath. I will glorify God. I will glorify God because he's good. He's good. And Father, thank you that your son Jesus is our example. He's our hope. God, give us grace with each other. Give us kindness toward one another. Compassion toward one another. Forgiveness toward one another. Knowing that you're the only man who's ever been perfect. You're the only one who's ever done it right all of the time. And our hope is in you. Where people have let us down, Lord, we just let that go right now in the name of Jesus. Because we expect perfection from only you, the perfect son of God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, 
God is with you.